Okay, so just, uh, I'm going to read and then pray for us and pray for Alan uh, as he comes up to speak from God's Word. And today's passage uh, is from Psalm 137. Um, so there's nine verses in this, and I'm going to read that, and then we'll pray for us as we come to God's Word. And this is the Word of God. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lairs, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they say, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray. Lord God, we um, are thankful and grateful uh, to be able to come and gather this morning uh, in your presence, uh, to be with you and be with God's people, uh, to hear uh, from your word. And, and Lord, as your, uh, as your word speaks to, uh, to difficult things and speaks to, um, to sobering things, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning through it. We'd say, uh, we pray that we would see your character uh, this morning we we know who you are, and we'd respond to uh, the holy, perfect uh, King that you are, the, the one who is full of, of grace and mercy, and that we would respond to you uh, in spirit and in truth, uh, knowing that you have given us uh, salvation, you have brought us joy, you sustain us, you're the one who is all things to us. And without you, we have nothing. And may we come this morning uh, with that sense of coming before you, uh, Almighty God. Lord, I pray for us as we um, prepare to hear from your word as, as Alan comes to, to teach from it and speak from it. Lord, I pray for Alan that you would bless him, that you would anoint his words, that you would use him this morning, what he has prepared uh, to speak from you, God and that we, your people, would hear from you this morning, God, that you would, uh, you would speak to us, you would correct us, you would encourage us, you would build us up, and Lord, that you would uh, send us out uh, this week uh, knowing who you are and, and wanting to, to follow and trust in you. Lord, I pray for our church family, I pray for those uh, this weekend uh, who have headed off to the camps are heading off to different uh, youth camps and those who have been at camps over the, the, the few weeks of the summer so far and, and will be over the next number of weeks. Lord, I pray for our young people that they would be really significant times in their, their walk with God, that those would be times that they could look back on as uh, a time when maybe their faith became uh, really their own, uh, per, owned by themselves, maybe 
Uh, it's a time that they can look back on to see how you spoke to them, uh, how you shaped them from these camps and, and, and discipled them and, and brought them into uh, back into churches and families where uh, they would be discipled on an ongoing basis. Lord, I pray uh, for each one. I pray for any nerves or anxieties for it, uh, for any that you would calm them, that you would take those away and that they would really just hear from you and, and, and have fun and enjoy those, those camps. Lord, I pray for Jelana as well as she has uh, gone uh, to her mission trip as well. And I pray that you would protect her, that you would uh, keep her safe, uh, that you would bless her, that this would be a really, uh, that you would use her, that you would use her uh, mainly within that team and with those who uh, they serve. And this would be a really significant time for, for her and her walk with you as well. So Lord, just pray for each one of us here. Spirit, come and move among us. Uh, come and speak now. And come and have your way uh, among us this morning. All for your glory, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thanks, Ali. And uh, yeah, it's good to be back with you in, in Cornerstone. I think it was winter the last time. Um, Kind of, sort of, a bit like today, but uh, I think just a, a few degrees, a few degrees colder. But it's good to be good to be back, and we're going to be thinking about this Psalm 137. If you have uh, a Bible uh, available and you want to keep it open as as we work our way through the passage, then I think that will be helpful. I think there's probably a couple of reasons why this particular Psalm, Psalm 137, uh, stands out for us. One of the reasons I would say is a cultural reason. And the other is probably more of a theological reason. So the cultural reason uh, has to do with um, a piece of music that was uh, all the rage in 1972. And uh, some of you, I, I mean, how many of you were born and already born in 1972? I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a few, not very many of us were born already in 1972. It's, it's 50 years, you know, 50 years ago. Um, but in, in 1972, there was a there was a song. It was it was it was originally part of the soundtrack of um, a Jamaican movie. It was a Rastafarian song, uh, and some of you will recognise the title of it, "By the Rivers of Babylon." And it was really based on this. It's a jaunty kind of a thing. If you don't if you don't uh, if you never heard it or didn't grow up with it, then uh, you can go and Google it at, at some point. Apparently, interesting little bit of background story about that song is that it was originally banned by the Jamaican government. Uh, the Jamaican government were concerned about some of the, the Rastafarian uh, references that were in it. Um, that, that's a whole, a whole, other, a whole other story, the, the, the Rastafarian movement. Uh, and they felt that there were elements of this song that were, that a little, that were sort of subversive and threatened uh, the, the overthrow of the government and so on. So they banned it until someone said to them, well, do you know, it is actually taken from the Bible, so you can't really ban it. And then I guess they unbanned it. So that's one reason the this, this psalm stands out, if you're aware of that song. But there's also a theological reason, not just a cultural reason, but also a theological reason. It has to do with that last paragraph. And uh, I think, you know, someone mentioned it to me already on, on the way in. You know, how do you pray uh, that last paragraph? How do you pray verse 9? Look at verse 9 again. Happy is the one, Babylon, this is addressed to Babylon, happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. 
I can remember years ago, a friend of mine, um, originally from Belfast, who now lives in Asia, and uh, I remember his paraphrase of it. And in sort of Belfast uh, lingo, he said, blessed is the man who baits wee Babylonian babies' heads off the pavement, uh, which probably, you know, gets the, the point uh, of, of the verse. Now, if you go into your local, I don't know where your nearest Christian bookshop is, if it's Newcastle or Banbridge or, or, or wherever it might be, but if you go into your nearest Christian bookshop and you ask him if you, if you can have a card uh, with some 137 verse 9 on it, I don't think that they will keep those in stock. It's not the kind of thing that you would put in a little card. You're more likely to have, you know, I know the plans that I have for you and, and, and so on and so on, but not so much blessed is the person who takes your infants and smashes them against the rocks. Good job the kids are out at, uh, you know, Sunday school or whatever, isn't it, at the moment? So we'll come to that verse. We're obviously going to work our way down. We're going to work our way down through the, through the chapter, and we will come to, to that verse. But by way of other background to this, th this Psalm 137 is a song of exile. And it looks back at a particular period in the history of the people of Israel and, and in the story of Jerusalem, uh, when the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians and its inhabitants were forcibly displaced in Babylon, hundreds of miles away. Now, eventually the Persians would uh, overthrow the Babylonians, and uh, they decided, with some of these exiles, they decided they would send them back to their original country. So there were Jews who got to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and rebuild the city. And that season of exile, the, the, the years of exile when Jews are living in Babylon and then Persia, that provides quite a, a, back, a lot of background to quite a bit of the Old Testament. For example, maybe one of the best-known best examples is the story of Daniel. Daniel was living in Babylon and then Persia. He was there in exile. The exile is the background to Jeremiah's message that we should seek the welfare of the city. Now, it's interesting to think that that's what Jeremiah's message was and yet here, sometimes later, we've got, sometime later, we've got people uh, thinking back at the season of exile and saying, let's hope the Babylonians get what comes to them. So pray for their welfare, but yet hope that they get what comes to them. It's an interesting tension there. And I would say also that this theme of exile, while it maybe seems like a piece of ancient history as far as we're concerned, I think it's very relevant to where we find ourselves at the moment uh, in, in our moment in the 21st century. And I'll say more about that uh, just, just a little later. So I'm going to make three observations about exile from this psalm. Uh, you'll notice that the psalm basically has three main parts. Uh, all of them have something to do with remembering Zion. So in verse 1, he, the psalmist says, we remembered Zion. And then verse 6, he says, you know, may my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. And then in verse 7, he says to the Lord, Remember what the Edomites did. What did they do to, to Zion or, or to, to Jerusalem? So th those verses come in three different sections. And the first section uh, is verse 1 to verse 4. And what I would say about this is that it, it shows us that exile is a time for lament. Exile is a time for, for lament. And if you look back over those first four verses, and you try to describe the tone of those verses and the emotion of those verses… You'll, you'll see that the tone is a tone of devastation. It's a tone of sadness. And although the psalm may well have been written sometime after the exile, 
the psalmist is actually going back in his mind to this group of exiles who are sitting alongside the, ba the Babylonian rivers and waterways, and they're weeping as they think of Zion. So you think of these people. They have been forcibly removed from Jerusalem. They're sitting there in Babylon alongside the canals, and they're thinking back to Jerusalem. Now, it's not just nostalgia. It's not just a longing for, a, for, for better days. This is the devastation of forced exile, as well as the destruction of the city that actually meant so much to them. Now, there are very few of us, I think, who can enter fully into that kind of experience. But think for a moment about the millions of displaced people there are in the world. Maybe famine has forced them to, to leave where they, where, they, where they would normally be living in search of food. Maybe it's war. Think about people from Ukraine who've had to leave their country and, and some of whom have found their, found their way to, to, to this island and found their way to, to various parts of the world, forced away from the place which was home for them. Think about victims of human trafficking who are not only removed from their homes but are forced to live under the oppression of their captors. Those are the kinds of people who I think are more likely to resonate with the raw emotion of some of this psalm. Now, some writers have suggested that when you think about exile, uh, it's not just physical, but sometimes exile is a, a state of mind. Um, and as such, I think it raises various questions for us and represents some challenges to, to our faith. And here's, here's what I mean by that. For those Jews, Zion, another word for Jerusalem, represented what was familiar. They knew Jerusalem. They knew the city. They knew, you know, who lived on what street, and they knew where, where they could go and, and all of those things. They knew, they knew Jerusalem. It was familiar. There was a familiar pattern to life in it. Life was stable. Life was secure. There was a temple. That was where God lived in one sense, and they could go and worship. Exile then doesn't just mean getting lifted away from the physical environment in which you live, but it also means losing the stability of something that was familiar that you thought would never be shaken. And that raises questions, doesn't it? You know, is God still going to be worthy of these people's trust? now that Zion has collapsed. Is God still powerful and relevant, or was He powerful and relevant in Jerusalem a lot of years earlier, but He's maybe not so relevant in Babylon? And what does it mean to live as a faithful exile? I think those are some of the questions that exile must have raised, and some of the questions that I think a book like Daniel seeks to answer for us. And in the New Testament, it's interesting, particularly in First Peter, where Peter talks about how we as Christians, or the people he's writing to in the first place, as Christians live as strangers and foreigners. In other words, they're living somewhere where they don't quite belong. They're not quite at home. He warned them about suffering the consequences of that. And, you know, if we were to talk to some of our brothers and sisters from around the world, maybe who live in a, a culture that's predominantly Buddhist or Hindu, 
uh, or a place where the state rules with an iron fist and forces conformity. Again, they, they, would, they would understand this idea of exile. But what about us? Because we, we, we live, we've, most of us have grown up in a, in a part of the world where it's been shaped in many ways by Christianity. But what happens to us when that starts to get shaken? When the, the shared values of, of a society with Christian roots, when those shared values are shaken, where things that we thought were reliable and trustworthy and would maybe never change actually get shaken and start to change and start to fall apart. And I think in many ways that's where we find ourselves. I think the church in the West, I don't think the church in the West can talk about being persecuted, but I think there are ways in which the church finds itself getting nudged out to the fringes of society. And when that happens, I think the theme of exile in Scripture becomes a lot more uh, significant and relevant to us. So let's look more closely then at, at what's happening to these Jewish exiles. This time of lament, exile is a time of lament. Now, they, not only did they have to endure being taken away from their homes, but they had to live under this added dimension of Babylonian mockery. So the Babylonians would say to them, hey, you guys from Jerusalem, you sing a lot in Jerusalem, don't you? You've got songs there in Jerusalem. Sing us a few of your songs. You've actually got songs about Jerusalem as well, don't you? Sing us a few of those. Maybe you could think about the likes of Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise, in the city of our God, His holy mountain, beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Or Psalm 87, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. You know, you could imagine these guys, I'm not sure that they would have had access to the, to the words, but you could imagine them saying, Hey, sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem now that you're here in Babylon. I said, how can we sing? How can we sing the Lord's song in this strange land? Because the city, the city's been ruined. It's been overrun by Babylonians. And so for the Babylonians to ask the Jews to sing one of their songs was actually cruel mockery. And so they said, well, we just, we just hung up our harps. The harps were instruments of joy. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You know, eventually Babylon would be overthrown. Before it was overthrown, the story is of Daniel and his friends would, would make it very clear that life in Babylon was not beyond the reach of God, but it was hard to sing. They got hold on to trust, but it was hard to sing, hard to sing those songs. And perhaps the pain and the confusion were just too great. Now, you're doing a series in the Psalms this, this summer, looking at a number of psalms that have been selected by people who are, who are, who are doing teaching uh, on the Sundays. And you realize that one of the values of the book of Psalms is the fact that there's such a range of human emotions. You notice that, don't you? It's such a range of human emotions. There's great soaring praise, and yet there's lament and sadness and even despair. Psalms were the hymn book of the Old Testament. These are the songs that Jesus sang. And when you realize the emotional range that there is in the Psalms, you realize that these are given to us so that we're able to relate all of life to God. Not just the joyful moments, but the sad and despairing moments as well. There's such a thing as lament. 
A few years ago, I came across a piece of writing that, that uh, was described as a liturgy for those who weep without knowing why. Those who weep without knowing why. Let me, let me read this to you. There is so much lost in this world, Lord, so much that aches and groans and shivers for want of redemption, so much that seems dislocated, upended, desecrated, unhinged, even in our own hearts. Even in our own hearts, we bear the mark of all that is broken. What is best in this world has been bashed and battered and trodden down. What was meant to be the substance has become the brittle shell, haunted by the ghosts of a glory so long crumbled that only its rubble is remembered now. Is it any wonder we should weep sometimes without knowing why? It might be anything. And then again, it might be everything. For those who weep without knowing why, that is a lament about the brokenness of the world. Now, you'll notice that there are psalms which call on us to hope in God, even when we're downcast. Psalm 42, put, put your hope in God, for I'll yet praise Him. You also, many of you will remember that when Paul was stuck in prison in Philippi and really suffering, he'd been beaten. He sings praises in the middle of the night. And there are times when praise feels like a sacrifice. Um, worshiping God, praising God, even when there are unanswered questions and even when there's pain. It's like a sacrifice. And I think there's a sense in which it's almost as though, it's almost as though there are times when praise is a statement of spiritual warfare. I'm going to praise God even in spite of what's happening. But while all that is true, let us also remember that there was a time when Jesus wept. And I would suggest that the fact that Jesus wept means that He sanctifies our tears. It's a part of His humanity. It's a part of our humanity. There's no need for us to be ashamed of it. He sanctifies our tears when we weep at the brokenness and loss that we see around us. So exile is a time of lament, realizing that things are not what they should be. But it's also then in verse 5 and verse 6, uh, a time for resolve. You notice in verse 5 and verse 6 that, that we move from we, where we sat down and we wept and so on, to I. Now, this time, they're still remembering Zion, but this time it's, it's, it's a note of determination. This is, this is resolve. The, the psalmist is resolving not to forget Jerusalem. I guess there might have been a temptation for some of them to say, well, do you know what? I'm going to hang up my harp. I'm not going to sing those songs of Zion anymore. In fact, I'm going to forget about the whole thing. Life is just going to be easier if I forget about the whole thing. I'm here in Babylon now, might as well make the most of it. But the psalmist says, I'm determined not to forget Jerusalem. And he actually invokes a penalty against himself in the event that he would ever, uh, that he would ever get to the point of no longer considering Jerusalem to be his highest joy. 
There's a Jewish tradition, I may have t said this here before, but there, there, is a, there is a Jewish tradition where they say grace after meals. I guess they say grace before meals, and then they say grace after meals. It makes some sense, doesn't it? You know, you, you can thank the Lord for what you're about to receive, but when you've received it and enjoyed it, it makes sense. Thank you, Lord, for this amazing meal that we've just enjoyed. You know, they, that, and that's, that's they, how they, they, they put that in, in their tradition. Now, on weekdays, uh, so the days, the days other than the Sabbath, before they say grace at the end of their meal, they recite a psalm. Guess which psalm? 137. They recite Psalm 137. And that means that even at, at mealtimes, times of joy and celebration, Maybe they're in, a, in family and they're with friends and, and there's so much to celebrate. Even at that time, they say we will never forget what happened to the city of Jerusalem. Now, that little phrase, we sat down and wept in verse 1, you find the exact same expression in Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 4. Nehemiah gets news from his brother about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he says, when I heard this news, I sat down and wept. You see, you could take the Jews out of Jerusalem, which is what the Babylonians did, but you could never really take Jerusalem out of the Jews. And even though they were to settle down and seek the welfare of the city, according to Jeremiah 29, uh, and that's how Nehemiah lived, I think it's how Daniel lived, he served his na the, the adopted nation well. But remember that Daniel never forgot Jerusalem. He kept praying three times a day towards Jerusalem. And I think there's a clue there about living in exile. Yes, we are where we are. Yes, things are not what they maybe will one, what they will one day be. We're not where we fully belong. But, you know, we cannot simply turn the clock back to a happier day. You know, if the Jews had been able to turn the clock back, say, can we just turn the clock back to the days when Jerusalem was not destroyed and there was singing in the streets and all of this kind of thing? You no, know, not just go back there. You can't turn the clock back. We can't turn the clock back either. I still remember uh, one Sunday several years ago, I was on my way to preach um, in, in, another, in another church, and I drove past another church where I sometimes preach, and there, they had a clock on the outside wall. I'm not going to say where it was, but there had a clock on the outside wall. And I noticed that it was, it was an hour slow. And you kind of think, do you know, sometimes that's where the church is. We're just, you know, behind the times. I'm not talking about changing everything just for the sake of changing everything. But sometimes there are some of us, and we would like, especially those of us who get a little bit older, we get nostalgic about the times that are past the music of the 1980s or 70s or whatever it might be, or the days when, you know, things were just different. But you can't turn back the clock. You can turn it back in October, unless it's on your oven, but you can't actually turn the clock back and go and live back in the past. You can't do it. And that means that we need to learn what it is to live where we are today. And part of that is maybe lament for the brokenness that we see around us, but part of it also has to be resolve. 
We resolve to remember where we really belong. We resolve to remember the kingdom where our allegiance really belongs. We can seek the welfare of the place where we are, but our hearts and our allegiance actually belong somewhere else. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, and he says, pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We live on earth, but we're longing for the kingdom of God to come, for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why, as Colossians says in one of the translations, we're to set our minds on the realities of heaven. We are, our citizenship is, is somewhere else. And it has to be our citizenship as citizens of the kingdom of heaven that defines us and that shapes us and that shapes our priorities. You know, the culture, we live, we live, in, we live in a culture, it's the way things are done, it's the values that are, that are there and so on and so on, many of them unspoken. And that is, if, you want, if I can put it like this, that is the sea in which we swim. And it struck me recently that that, that, that sea in which, in which we swim there's such a, a strong discipling that goes on from our culture. Our culture disciples us. We may not realize it. We don't realize it because we don't realize this is the sea that we're swimming in. Just as a fish doesn't realize the sea that it's swimming in, just thinks, well, I, I don't know what's, what's the sea. It's, it's what you're swimming in. And we don't realize the effect that our culture has on us. And I think I'm becoming increasingly aware that, that sadly, for too long, the church has not done a good enough job at discipling. And so we're being discipled subconsciously, unconsciously, every single day by the values of the culture in which we live. And we don't take seriously enough our call to be disciples whose citizenship is somewhere else. And so these exiles, in their sadness, they say, well, we hung up our harps. We couldn't sing but we're going to resolve that we will not forget Jerusalem. Exile is a time of lament, and it's a time for resolve. And thirdly, in the last part, it's a time for prayer. And you notice that the remembering in this little section has to do with God remembering Jerusalem. It's the first part of the psalm that actually addresses God directly. It's not that God would forget Jerusalem, but the prayer is lifting the city before him. Lord, don't forget what happened, and don't let them get away with it, basically what he's saying. Now, we'll get to the nature of the prayer in the moment and some of the problems of the prayer in the moment, but let's not miss how the psalm encourages us to bring our circumstances before the Lord, not least our painful circumstances. Lord, will you remember what has happened here? You know, James says to us, in his letter in chapter 5, said, you know, if you're, if you're joyful, if things are going well, and, you know, you've been blessed in some way, and maybe a prayer has been answered, well, praise the Lord for that. If you're suffering, pray. All of the circumstances of life, we're to bring them to God. And so exile is included in that. It's a time for prayer. But I think what probably troubles us about this specific prayer it's just this idea of vengeance in it. Isn't it, isn't it troubling? You've got Babylon itself is mentioned in verses 8 and verse 9. But Edom is also mentioned, especially the spite that Edom has shown towards Jerusalem in verse 7. So he says, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did 
on the day that Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to its foundations. Now the Edomites was a nation that were descended from Esau. Esau was the twin brother of Jacob. And although they were related to Israel, they had a whole history of, of opposition to the Israelites. And several of the Old Testament prophets have words of reproach for, for Edom. Here's, here's what Obadiah says. He says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. In, in other words, your, your, kind of, your cousins uh, in Jerusalem were, were, were being um, destroyed by people. Their wealth was being carried away. You were just like one of them. You were just like one of the enemies. And the way the psalmist prays here about Edom is in line with the tone of the Old Testament when it comes to Edom. And of course, there's Babylon. Babylon, the place of exile. Isaiah 13 promised that Babylon eventually would be destroyed at the hands of the Medes. And here the psalmist cannot wait until the day that Babylon is destroyed. He almost envies the people who are going to get to repay Babylon for what, what they did to Jerusalem. It's brutal, isn't it? And we, we recoil from these kind of words. What, what are words like this doing, doing in our Bibles? Dashing the children off the pavement. Now, actually, dashing, dashing the, uh, the children of your opponents to pieces was a known form of warfare in the ancient world. That's, that's what you did. It wasn't just limited to the Babylonians, but when you, you, you came in to conquer people, you dashed their children to death. That was a way of dealing with the next generation. You made, you made a statement. And, and sadly, it's not been limited to, to the, the ancient world either. It still has come up in much more recent history. This is the cruelty of the Babylonians. But Babylon has got it coming to them, and the psalmist cannot wait. Quite a contrast, isn't it, from what Jeremiah said. And Jeremiah said, pray for Babylon that it will go well. You're going to be there for a while, so pray for the city of Babylon. Pray for its prosperity. I think that would have been a really tough prayer for the, the, the Israelites to pray while they were in exile. And if you were in exile with, as, as one of the Jews, and you had the choice of praying, Lord, would you bless and prosper these Babylonians? Or, Lord, would you haste the day when someone will come and bash their children's heads off the pavement? What would you go for, you know? Really, what would you go for if you'd been through what these Israelites had been through? I dare say for many, it would have been a lot easier to pray Psalm 137. But what are we going to do with this wish for vengeance? Now, we need to recognize the psalmist is not personally going to pick up weapons. He's going to let God take care of justice. But we're not really going to turn these three, three verses into a children's chorus. Imagine, you know, now that, you know, you've got your little five-year-old or something, or you're, you're going to, you know, sing a little song as they go to sleep. Uh, now we're going to sing a little song today. We've come to Psalm 137, verses 7 to 9. So we're going to sing a little song here about bashing other people's children uh, off the pavement. You, you wouldn't do that. Um, interestingly, uh, I have some uh, friends who are Reformed Presbyterians, and Reformed Presbyterians sing the Psalms. Um, you know, you, there's one down the road, isn't there? Uh, and you could, you could, they, they just sing the Psalms. No musical accompaniment, just the Psalms. And these verses, they haven't left these verses out, to be fair to them. I haven't been in a Reformed Presbyterian service when they sang them, I don't think, but um, that, that would be an interesting experience. So we, we recoil from it, and then we think, 
Well, did Jesus not teach us that we should love our enemies? Did Jesus not teach us that we should pray for the people who, who, who persecute us? Let me give you a couple of things to think about here. Number one, let us not attempt to play down the rawness of the emotion. Okay, we've got a problem with it because it doesn't look like the New Testament. But in trying to deal with it, we need to recognize that there is a raw emotion here. This is a very emotional psalm. Grief in the first part, determination in the second part, anger in the third part. The city of God has been destroyed. Its people have been displaced, they've been tormented, and its children have been slaughtered. Now look, you do not just shrug your shoulders at stuff like that. Now, one of the problems with anger is that we get too angry about things that we shouldn't get angry about, usually personal things. But the other problem with anger is that there are times when we do not get angry enough at things that we should get angry about. We shrug our shoulders, and we get on with our lives. Someone said that Christians are generally uncomfortable with anger. While sorrow is largely recognized as a signpost pointing toward the kingdom to come, rage receives no such consideration. At best, it, it's seen as a, an immaturity to grow out of, and more often as a revelatory flaw in character. But you see, when you see oppression, when you see injustice, when you see wickedness that appears to go unpunished, should you shrug your shoulders as if it didn't matter? Or would it be appropriate to be angry about that? I think things like oppression and injustice ought to stir our emotions the way they stirred the emotions of the psalmists. But the other thing, then, is this, this hunger for vengeance. Isn't there something about us that, that wants things to be fair? You know, you imagine, you know, if you've got your kids are growing up and, you know, one gets to, one gets to have maybe a, a, an extra fish finger or, you know, gets to watch an extra 15 minutes of television or whatever, whatever the thing might be, and the other, well, that's not fair. And it's ingrained in us. It's just there, isn't it? This instinct for fairness and justice. And there's something in us that wants wrongs to be put right. Think of that old statement that comes from, from C.S. Lewis's Narnia. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You know, that longing for the sadness to be done away with, for the unfairness to be, to be made right, for injustice to be replaced with righteousness, that longing is a, is a natural longing, and this is it outworking in this psalm. But now here's another question. If we find ourselves longing for justice, but at the same time trying to take seriously when Jesus says we're to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us, what about God? Could God love His enemies and at the same time not only long for justice, 
but actually do something to bring it about. How can God do that? God's asking us to do that. How can he ask us? How, how, can, how can he do that? How can he love his enemies and long for justice? And I think that points us, and we're going to come very soon to, to the Lord's table and communion. And I think this question points us in the, the direction of, of the cross of Jesus. Because it's in the cross of Jesus that God absorbs the wickedness of his enemies. God bears the penalty of his enemies and secures his enemies' forgiveness. The cross becomes a place of shelter for everyone who believes. It's the place, as one of the hymns puts it, where wrath and mercy meet. And you know that song, that old hymn, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the Mount of Crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide, through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. You know, and that's where you and I find mercy. You, know, you may not be guilty of the, the crimes of the Babylonians, but you too need mercy. I need mercy. And we find it at the cross where God's justice and His love for His enemies is brought together. We need mercy, don't we? If God's going to judge sin, if God's going to establish righteousness and justice, well, where, where should He draw the line? You know, should He draw it and say, well, the Babylonians are clearly, they, they need justice, but, but maybe me not so much. Well, it's not as simple as that. As the Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. So exile means lament, not nostalgia, but deep sadness at loss and decline. It means determination, so much in our culture that wants to disciple us and shape us and shape our kids. And in the context of that, we must never forget where we, where we really belong. And it also means praying, praying and longing for the day when Christ's work will eventually come to fruition, and He will judge the world in righteousness, and everything that is wrong will be put right. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today, and while we acknowledge that some of it seems so um, strange to us, yet, Lord, we want to thank you that you've given us um, a psalm and a whole book of them that speak to all the experiences of our lives. And so we pray that you would bless your word to us, Lord, as, as we 
maybe reflect on this, each of us will, will be in, in a different place. Each of us will have been um, impacted, perhaps in a different way. But Lord, we pray that you'd help us to hear your voice to us today. In Jesus' name, amen.